Art of the Cut is brought to you by FilmTools.com, your one-stop shop for production and post-production gear. Be sure to listen for an exclusive site-wide offer later in the show. Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hallfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. Today, we're talking about posting John Krasinski's TV series, Some Good News, completely remotely during lockdown in New York City. I'm talking with Josh Sr. of Senior Post and his teammate, Evan Buxbaum, head of Leroy, the production group associated with Senior Post. Every week, the team processes iPhone footage shot by Krasinski, along with other material. With everyone working remotely, the team used Adobe Premiere Pro to edit and finalize each show within three days. A senior post server houses the footage, and collaboration mainly occurs via Slack and group text. It's a post story that perhaps many can relate to, and others may find themselves facing soon. Let's talk a little bit about some good news and what. Uh, how did you guys get into this project? How how did this start? So I'll just tell you a little bit, just briefly about us. So you yeah, can sort of please. Think. So Josh founded the company. Uh, it's Senior Post and Leroy. Leroy is the production company. Senior Post is the post production company. Uh, up until a couple months ago, we, on the post side, were exclusively a film and television post house. Uh, the physical space was called Senior Post, uh, is still called Senior Post, but the, the office is Senior Post. All of the posts is done. We have, you know, uh, about 18 suites. The full setup is all like physically Senior Post. Leroy is the company that I run. I run our production company. So I run all of our scripting, our original development, all of our physical production. Um, anything, anything that we're producing is sort of my, my thing. So things that I'm more attuned to are production and things that Josh is more attuned to are, um, are post-production and sort of the company as a whole, which he founded and runs. Got it. And you guys are out of New York? Yeah, we are based in Dumbo, Brooklyn. Uh, right down down under, the, under the Manhattan Bridge? Down under the, I believe it's down under the Manhattan Borough Overpass. Down under the Manhattan Borough Overpass. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Down under the Manhattan Bridge Overpass. That's what it is. <laughs> Love it. Um, a beautiful little cobblestone street out front of our office. Uh, the, the street out front of our office is actually the street where if you look down it, you see through the Manhattan Bridge, you see the Empire State. It's like become the number one most Instagram spot in Brooklyn and I think maybe New York City. So every time we leave our office, there are just literally thousands of tourists there, except for now when there's no one anywhere. Yeah. That and the the Joker stairs. Yes. Yep. 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 <laughs> Yeah, the dancing down the stairs thing. Yes. So, from a from a production standpoint, are you guys doing anything at all for this show, or just post? So, on this show, we were uh, we were co-producing it with um, with John Krasinski's production company, Sunday Night Productions. Um, they handled the the vast majority, the lion's share of the production, to be sure. Josh and I were EPs on the show, our EPs on the show, and we tried to um, be a part of that process and especially be a part of that process where we could help find ways to smooth the transition between uh, the production and the post, which we handled the bulk of. Um, so Josh and I would get involved a little bit before the rest of the post team uh, in order to sort of prevision how that was going to land from a post perspective, and that helped smooth the whole process a little bit. So in terms of the split, that was sort of how it, that was sort of how it worked. 
So there's a lot of call-in uh, guests and that kind of thing. I saw, I saw the show where the couple got married on the show, which is yeah. very episode seven. Yeah. Okay. Episode seven. And I saw, uh, which was, which had a ton of call-in. So like all, the entire cast of, of, uh, the office was on there, friends, mothers, all this kind of stuff. Did you guys interface with those people to help them deliver the best quality? Or, uh, is that something that you do on the production side? What, what are you doing to help make the show look as good as it can look? Yeah. So obviously with this show, that was, the big hurdle, um, and all the credit in the world to, um, to Sunday night productions, to their team. They did so much work with that developing, um, processes by which we were recorded. Uh, so yes, that was absolutely something that was worked on with all of the people who were calling in. There were certain ways in which, uh, Skype should be set to get the best settings. There are ways in which Zoom should be set, there are ways Google Hangouts, um, and sort of figuring out the best practices for recording everybody on Zoom um, and then figuring out how to do that in a way that would then be cut together because some of it was live, some of it was not live, some of it was recorded, and marrying that all together in a way that was seamless um, sort of took a lot of a lot of doing. Um, and that was something that we did part of. That was something that Sunday Night Productions did a lot of. Josh was very involved in uh, in that and back so he can slot right in and talk about how zoom settings <laughs> his favorite thing zoom settings so the zoom settings are a p- big part of how we're making this look better that would be true yeah i think the little things like the way that you can set zoom up to record separate audio channels for each person that's involved in a Zoom allows a lot of post-processing and mixing to be done in a way that is more akin to regular production than perhaps something that feels more like a flat video chat. Um, You know, for me, from a post standpoint, the challenge in the show is almost all the assets we received are always like bound or user generated. And so you're getting flat exports, MOV files and, you're challenged with extracting them into pieces and repackaging them and always looking for handles on things you don't have. Um, that is, you know, certainly a limiting factor, but it, it, the other hand of it, it became very creatively fulfilling in so much as we were able to, as we went, figure out tips and tricks for how to maximize our ability to make things nonlinear. So the audio and zoom is a big one. Also, just the video settings, making sure that the files recorded in as high resolution as possible in a gallery view so we can make nonlinear edits to things without like a pinned speaker mode or something of that nature. Um, all of these things were learned by making mistakes. It's not like we walked into this having a ton of best practices. I mean, I don't know if Evan has uh, illustrated, like talked to you guys a little bit more about how we got involved, but like none of this is premeditated. Yeah, you should dive into how we got involved. I was waiting for you on that because that is your story to tell. Um, okay. Uh, I'm trying to think about the best way to start. Be a storyteller. Come on. <laughs> yeah, I think I can. Um, I got an Instagram DM from the president of a company called Communo, who used to be my... Uh, my office neighbor next door in Dumbo back when we had a post house we could go to. Um, and 
it was cryptic. He was kind of like, Hey, uh, I'm friends with John Krasinski. We're trying to make this thing. It's not really coming together. Uh, do you think that you you and your guys could take a crack at it? Uh, it, you know, this was Friday night at midnight. He was like, we want to go live on Sunday. Uh, I've got some files on a Dropbox and I'll send them to you and, and you see what you can do. And it was as simple as that. And honestly, it, it allowed me to really just like see it for what it was. There was no agenda. There was no like, it needs to look and feel like this. It was just kind of like, Hey, we've got this thing. We've got this footage. Uh, you guys seem to know what you're doing, you know, just like put it together and make it what it's going to be. There's a zoom between Steve Carell and John that I think it's really special. We're not sure what to do with it or where to put it or how it's not really working right now. Is it as a recorded zoom? So is there anything that you could do to help? And then Evan and I woke everybody up on our team really, really early the next day. We downloaded all the footage, we put it together and we were just kind of off to the races and the look and the feel of the show was born very naturally. Um, and we would go through that every week. Uh, you know, obviously the first one came out and it was kind of like, okay, great. That was fun. Like talk to you guys soon. And then that Thursday, I think they were like, all right, we're doing it again. Um, like with all, uh, like with all good things, it started with a cryptic DM on a Sunday morning. (laughs) Yeah, honestly, what did you feel? What did the, what needed to be done to that? I I saw that interview, what needed to be done in post to make it come together that wasn't working as just a regular zoom call. Well, I think, you know, there are a lot of different ways that you can put something together, even something as simple as a zoom call that show tone. Um, you know, that even a simple, a simple zoom call can be made to be so many things. It can be, uh, made to be very cutty and very quick. It can be made to be almost unedited and super long. It can be made to almost be a, you know, a comedy of itself. There's, uh, you know, an online sort of satire. There are a lot of different ways. And I think the first couple of weeks, the, the bulk of our process, and really the reason that I think we ended up continuing on with the show was getting the, the tone of the show, the sort of earnest, heartfelt tone. Um, and that was something that we really identified with um, along with John and, and their team and that sort of bonding over that tone uh, and the fact that we understood that and brought that to the edit, I think is what really solidified the partnership. Uh, and a lot of that happened in the first the first week um, and continued to be solidified two weeks to two. I guess it's a good distinction to make, right? Like the zoom call as it was, as a long play, wasn't bad or uninteresting. It was, it was very observational. And I think one of the things that we were very cognizant of was not creating a situation where something felt packaged, but it inherently required a great deal of packaging. We're talking about a 40 minute conversation that had to be boiled down to feel like it happened in real time and that it wasn't edited. Uh, and we added elements to the, the project in a way that were illustrative, but not performative. So this wasn't a news package on John Oliver's show, but it wasn't, you know, my mom and her friends recording their, their zoom chat and putting it up on YouTube, mm-hmm. uh, finding the balance between that, I think required a lot of, as Evan said, tone, but also just like understanding of 
uh, of how produced everything should feel like having the restraint to scale back some of the tips and tricks that we would use on a show on HBO that we make, uh, and making it feel like it was home baked, but it was made by all of us seemed to be the magic trick that we had to perform every week. And do you think that, do you think that tone of that show is because of the listener, because viewers are kind of wanting and expecting that kind of thing? Or do you think it's because of John's kind of brand? What do you think the, where do you think that tone is coming from? I can't speak for Evan, but for me, um, you know, in, internally we talk a lot about how content as of late has become very ironic and satirical and almost, you know, winking at the camera and everybody else. And if nothing else, I think like a pandemic just makes everybody unable to present to the world with a, with a performative mask, you know, like we're show, you're seeing my house and I'm in your home right now and there's no veneer. And I think because of that, the appetite for authenticity goes way up and uh, it, it's the right tone at the right time. I don't think a show like this would do well programmed against a bunch of, you know, ironic takes on things, but you know, pre-pandemic, I'd say it was peak irony. And now I think there's an appetite for authentic, heartfelt, unprogrammed things that are just altruistic. We talk so much about the show, just the, the only purpose of it is bringing joy. And so when that's your agenda and it's not to be snarky or witty or funny, I think uh, nailing the tone doesn't really become a challenge. It's just a gut check. Like you, me, Evan, Anybody knows if it's right or it's wrong. Is it, would you agree, Ev? I would agree, yeah. He concurs. I concur. I should have concurred. <laughs> and and uh, how are you guys? I, I know that uh, it's not really a clips kind of show, but one of the things that I saw had a bunch of clips in it, you know, a girl flying on the back of a truck or something to the yeah. Wicked soundtrack and a bunch of girls dancing. Uh, how is John asking you to put those things? Is he giving you links and then you guys are doing all that? Or how is that How is that stuff getting pieced together? In a simple word, uh, yes. Uh, it's, uh, it's come from uh, people who tag... Uh, some good news, um, the show. And then that all comes in and is combed into documents, uh, both through John and John's production company, Sunday Night Productions. And all the social teams. And all the social teams that are working around the clock. So all of those assets sort of come into a funnel and are, were distilled to our team. And our team would then go through um, and put them into, uh, into place, essentially, and send those cuts back to... Uh, John and his production team, um, who who would then comment on that, and we'd go back and forth on rounds. So it would be pretty much a large funnel distillation process from the world, from people tagging it to John and some good news down to us, and then distilled back to the team as a cut, which would then be um, revised. Got it. And uh, what technical resources are you guys using to pull that stuff off the internet, whether it's TikTok videos or YouTube? Yeah. I mean, we do it a bunch of different ways. Um, most of the time those assets are like hastily taken down from like a, a download site 
um, and then contacted uh, like the source providers then contacted to give their permission. And when they do, they usually part of the ask is for them to send us their original file. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, John makes jokes a lot about, you know, uh, copyright infringement and intellectual property. But at the end of the day, um, there was like five units of groups whose job was to call and collate and organize and contact and paper all of the people who participated in the show. And so one of the steps in the editing process would be like a fake online in which we would actually get like source media from these people. Uh, and sometimes that involved like us hopping on the phone with them and being like, plug your phone into the computer, <laughs> open up iPhoto, drag this to your desktop. I'm going to send you a URL, click this button and send it to me. But like, you know, whether it's I messaged, airdropped, Dropbox, we transferred, texted to us any way we could get it. Um, you know, we were kind of like the, uh, the closet organizer that takes all this stuff in and then it lands with us and then we distributed it out. And, you know, the reason that we were able to do that is because we leveraged the backbone of our actual post house. We have a full-time online editor. Everything went and landed on our server the same way we serve all of our shows remotely. And so we were like backing this loosey-goosey workflow into a real post house and post operation so that we were able to run like up to six editors at the end of it, uh, all with mirrored local drives of like proxy media for lack of a better word. And then our online editor would collect all of that real true stuff, uh, and put it together with the sound mix, uh, in order to make the actual air master deliverable. Great. So we did approximate a TV workflow. I would really like to hear about that because obviously the editors are all working from home. Is everybody's home. Everybody's home. Is there anybody at all in the office, an assistant editor or somebody that's dealing with the server that's at the office? Zero. Zero. There's one person who has access to the server through an encrypted VPN. He's our full-time online editor. He lives in New Rochelle and the server's in Dumbo. And he is controlling up to nine computers at the post house at any given time. And that's the back room. That's he, Mr. Wizard. Comes in, goes to him, he proliferates it out. And uh, that's helped us, you know, deliver a Hulu show at the same time as we're making this online and deliver an HBO series. Like, this is the way that we are able to keep all of our sort of ships out at sea. We'll be back in a moment with more of my interview with Josh Sr. and Evan Buxbaum. Today's episode of the Art of the Cut podcast is brought to you by FilmTools.com. Since 1996, FilmTools has been Hollywood's one-stop shop for all things production and post. No matter your filmmaking needs, FilmTools has you covered when you need gear for your next shoot or edit. This week, FilmTools is offering Art of the Cut listeners 10% off thousands of products when shopping on FilmTools.com. All you have to do is enter code AOTC10 at checkout. That's AOTC10 at checkout to get 10% off your purchase on FilmTools.com. So whether you need a GTEC hard drive or an Airy Sky panel, make sure to head over to FilmTools.com and check out with discount code AOTC10 to get 10% off your next equipment purchase. And now back to my interview with Josh Sr. and Evan Buxbaum. Uh, Let's talk about the technical aspects of having your editors in their homes uh, work either, how do they work with that server and with local storage? 
Everybody works locally. So when the assets come in, our post producer goes in and renames them through our naming convention for that week's episode and then drops in the Slack channel a notice that the files are good to download. Everybody downloads those files. The assistant editor brings them into a project, logs, syncs, spins, and organizes them, posts that project file onto the Slack channel, which is then downloaded by all of the editors. And then Evan and I distribute the tasks across the team to figure out who's doing what. Those things are then produced in segments. Those segments are uploaded with time code on them to Vimeo. We pass them back and forth with Sunday night to get approval. As the segments get locked, they get online into a master timeline, which sits with one of the editors. And by the time we're done putting together all the little packages, usually John has shot the news. And then the news becomes the hero project file that all things are built into. And then we ship that full episode back and forth with Sunday night a few times as a Vimeo link. Once it gets approved, it then goes over to the online editor who connects everything to the masters, turns over the AAF to the sound mixer, and you know the drill from there. Wow. Uh, and all of this is uh, Premiere? Oh, yeah. Pre online and Resolve. We edit in Adobe Premiere. We mix in Pro Tools. Talk to me about uh, that uh, transition between Premiere and Resolve and how that works for online. Is that, uh, can you can you speak into that? Would yeah, sure. Anything? Yeah. I mean, yeah, in a past life, that would have been me. Um, <laughs> me too. <laughs> yeah. Resolve is the nice to have in this equation. If it gets late enough on Sunday, we're doing the thing in Premiere. Uh, you know, we're doing any color, cor any like quick color correction we're doing in Premiere anyway. The show's not super finished, but you know, there are elements of the show that do have like a lot of power windows or selective color correction that's just more challenging to do in Premiere that we do in Resolve. As a post house, we typically online in Resolve where we'll just marry finished color assets from the color house with the sound files and do the titling and the deliverables ourselves. That's like a core service of senior post. One of the, one of the things that we're really good at is online. So we try to approximate that workflow, but um, when it's just premiere to resolve, we usually just pump out an XML, reconnect the media, line it all up, make sure it's good. Uh, other times we'll just do a notch conform, full flat export of the ProRes, drop it in, marry it to the sound, make any tweaks in the timeline. And there goes our deliverable. We try not to complicate it. I mean, Resolve can do a lot of things. So it can premiere. Uh, the show can be done pretty much anywhere but Avid. And I'm a fan of Avid, but like it's it's so many little different things. It's MP4s, it's MOVs, it's different frame rates. There's drop time code. There's audio recorded in every possible way. And what we do is we just find the common denominator and transcode everything to that. Got it. No, yeah, Avid's not good at that kind of thing i would agree with that although it looks it's good for your, other things your bedroom when your bedroom wallpaper almost looks like uh avid uh, <laughs> this, this used to be my my son's nursery before it became my office those are actually little decals um yeah i'm non you know we, we i'm not anti-avid but for us premiere has always been a core function of our company you know, we were in all Adobe House when we caught, when we controlled all of our work as we grew and scaled. Uh, you know, other television shows that have come to us have come with prerequisites involving Avid. Uh, all the features we work on are in Premiere. I think we are a use the right tool for the job type company, um, and we're going to be that way. You know, for the foreseeable future. 
with Adobe Premiere's new um, production, where the, where things are called productions and projects are inside of productions, is that something that you're using for this? No, actually, we're running like a much older workflow for Premiere, uh, just for simplicity. That that project file trade off in Slack is like we learned that because our post house is on the fifth and the eighth floor uh, of a building. And up until about four days before the pandemic hit, those two servers weren't connected. So we needed to figure out a really quick way to share project files when we had mirrored assets. Uh, when we were, you know, we have 17 suites in the post house. There are times when part of that job was, you know, split across three floors, depending on who's using what room. And so that is like the most analog way that we found to share stuff but it's the one that has the least problems. There's no dynamic linking. There's no there's no importing sequences. There's no pre-rendering anything at all. It's like, here's the thing I'm working on. I'm putting it there. You take it. You've got it. Okay, add your initials to it. Put it here. Um, it's a very one-to-one thing. And uh, that helped us really simplify and also onboard to the team. Like the first week we did it with the five of us. Next week was seven, then nine, then 11, then 13. You know, so it's like we stacked people every week as the show got more and more complex and we were pulling people that we had always worked with, but not necessarily that had worked with each other. And there wasn't any time for team building. So we developed a really quick shorthand. We made a Bible, which was all the logins and passwords and previous notes and style guides and, you know, a general weekend timeline. Uh, And that's how we did it. It was very much on the fly. And so the speed that we were able to get from just a very simple project sharing with uh, with Premiere was the way that we were able to get the most people involved. What are some of the things that you guys feel that you don't want to do because you're trying to make it feel a little more homemade? On this show, that was definitely a thing that came up several times. Um, the idea from the beginning of the show was really that um, it would be, as you said, homemade. It would be pretty raw. Uh, and that as we would move forward through the, through the weeks, we would have an opportunity to start adding more production value a little bit, maybe in week two, maybe in week three, maybe in week four. Um, and so the plan was always to start at a really raw place and add a little bit more as we progress. Um, the places where that was really most discussed were around color correction, sound mix, uh, and graphics. Um, the idea was in the beginning, it would be very raw in terms of sound mix. We sound mix some things that really needed it, um, but mostly it was all just brought from stereo to mono, just you know to make sure that it was hearable, um, but not to really do any finesse work. Same was the case with graphics. Uh, we wanted to do it, be true to the SGN logo that was um, created and drawn by John's kids, and not to sort of go over the top in terms of graphics. As the seasons went on, we, we got a little bit more advanced with those things. And frankly, we got a little more advanced with those things as the shoots became more complex and advanced. You know, doing Hamilton was much more complex than an interview uh, between uh, John and Steve uh, in the beginning, you know, from a sound perspective. So as the episodes got more complex, the requirements got a little bit more complex. And we sort of found ourselves doing a bit more of a sound mix when we had time. You know, John... Josh and I would press for sound mixes every week, wherever we could. Obviously, the, the, the timeline to make this show was 
super fast. So we would find ourselves rolling into Sunday, you know, with, with like trying to get to a sound mix, but then it was like, do we have time to sound mix before we get it out? We want to get it out Sunday night. So it was always a balance. Um, we started sound mixing more. We started doing a little bit more graphic work, but always tried to keep it as true to sort of the DIY homemade vibe uh, as possible. And I think that that showed through in the, in the course of the show. You mentioned that the show is about giving people joy or being joyful. How, how does that mantra fit into the production and the post? Like where is that decisions? Like when you're, when you're thinking through things, how does that affect things? Well, from a content planning standpoint, I think it, you know, it all starts with the stories, right? The, the purpose of the show is to provide good news to a group of people. And that's it. That there's no other agenda. There's no slant. There's no spin. Nobody's coming on the show, you know, thinking they're going to be talking about one thing with some sort of reveal for another. Um, everything about the way that we engineered the flow of the show was created around surprise and watchability and, uh, you know, magic, right? Like this is, this is supposed to be something that seems like he's doing it by himself in his, in his house. And each week, the, the caliber of, uh, of the stunt we tried to one up and then we sort of hit an apex of that and realized like what's really special about the show is that so many people are being inspired to do their own thing and to, and to reverberate out. And the community episode was such a nice capstone for us because there was no, there was no feat. There was no stunt. There was no big celebrity. It was literally the manifestation of this idea that when you put good things out into the world, other people are inspired to do good too. And, you know, everyone talks about how hard it is to be home and, and what, what this world is, is confusing and, you know, navigating family time and work and all of these things. But at the end of the day, you know, if every time you turn on the news, at the end of the night, it's bad news. Uh, that doesn't really set you up for a good day the next day. And I, the idea of like putting this out on Sundays even was like, Hey, uh, let's hit the reset button every week. Let's give everybody just like, you know, that bite of ginger when they're having their sushi, just something to clean the palate and, and let, let everybody just smile for a little bit. You know, the, it's fun when you see the, the heart swell moments and the really sweet endearing things. And, and then it's funny and there's music and, uh, it's exciting and you get to see people's unbridled joy. Like there's so much surprise in every episode. Uh, all of those like zoom surprises that we did were actual surprises. People didn't know that whether it was the wedding or Oprah or even the Hamilton thing, like that was meant to delight somebody. And we all just got to watch them be happy. And so that's inherently entertaining. Like you don't have to try and make that cool and watchable. Uh, you just kind of have to let it be what it is. When you were assigning these things to various editors, did you feel like people had specific skills or abilities that you, when you assigned those things, or was it? I don't know any of your staff, so I don't know. I don't well, know I could talk to that a little bit, and I bet Evan probably has a take. But for me, by virtue of the fact that our post house um, gets to work with really talented people, we have a really nice stable of folks that we like. Uh, the foundation of all of our posts is Joanna Noggle. She's our partner in senior post. She's our lead editor. She sets the tone. She's fast. She's really creative. She understands style and her 
uh, first pass at that first episode sort of became the template by which everybody else was onboarded into the process. We brought on Adam Epstein, who we'd worked with on a few comedy specials, and uh, he had a lot of experience at SNL, uh, which we found to be a very relevant comp. And he helped introduce us to some other people like that. And we, I brought on my friend Ernie Gilbert, who uh, we had been working on a feature with, but had a lot of experience working uh, on Baskets and Barry and Atlanta. And we're trying to find people who know how to make really good stuff at a really high level, work very fast, and also are a good hang. Because you're spending, you know, at the very least, 72 hours straight with these people. Yeah, I, I agree with all that. And I think the, the motivating principle for this, and, you know, that's something that is really exemplified by Joanna, who's just one of the most fabulously talented editors I've ever had the pleasure of coming across, um, is for people to be easygoing enough to, to do things fast. And that led us to a lot of Saturday Night Live editors because <laughs> they were used to this sort of timeline. Um, and who, you know, uh, who could thrive in this environment um, and do so in sort of without making it uh, sort of a sarcastic exercise from a comedy perspective. Which surprises me that it was Saturday Night Live editors. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, after we get out of the gates early on, Joanna did uh, the, the just a ton of the work early on. And once we had a couple of episodes under our belt, I think it became a lot easier to show up to someone and say, hey, this is the tone and for it to be very clear. You know, that's something that's a lot harder in episode one and two. But by episode three or four, you know, you, you can say earnest. You can say that you want it to, to let it breathe and not have it be sort of like, a, a you know, what's, what's considered these days to be sort of a very rapid fire digital short um, in the world of highly consumable um, sort of pieces. But that becomes a lot clearer when someone can just watch an episode and say, oh, this, this is the time. And so I think that got easier and easier. And it became more about finding editors who could thrive in the environment of the media city and needing to push something out in three days um, and less about finding editors who naturally knew the tone because the tone was self-evident the further we went. Did you say that's cool, Jeff? Yeah, it was. Also, um, after we had like four episodes under our belt, uh, creatively, between the EPs, uh, Evan and I and, and the folks at Sunday Night, we would reference segments that we had made in previous episodes for either tone, style, or music. And that enabled us to create a shorthand where I could say to an editor, watch this, we're doing something that feels like this with this asset. I wasn't sure how many people used that term of being a good hang. For somebody that is looking for a gig, whatever their next gig, their first gig, a gig with you guys, a gig with me, um, talk about how important that is when you're looking at talent, technical ability and being a good hang, you know, bedside manner is a big part about what makes a good editor, a great editor. If we're not going to be in the room together, we need to figure out a way to approximate that. So that's transparency. That's honesty. That's levity and organization. But you know what else is, it's the ability to pivot in the moment and understand where your function fits in the hierarchy of both time management and the structure of creating something. I think, you know, I, I've run into so many editors who have three of those pieces and can't connect the dots. Um, but, you know, I'm not saying you need to come super humble to every conversation. I, I just think like knowing who you are and what you bring to the table and being able to, you know, advocate for yourself when you need to, but also how to adapt and be flexible 
uh, even later on in that day, um, is the key to success for me. I think, you know, Evan and I work very similarly. And what's great about that is that like the two of us would share the duty over a weekend of, uh, managing down to the editorial team because this thing literally is around the clock. Um, and so in our handoffs, we would be able to learn a lot about what was working with who. And if there were certain segments that were just hard to get with somebody, we would shuffle the deck. And that collaborative post process is something we were really upfront about with people that we onboarded, but it also helped us to really like hit those deadlines. Still having a server at your office is pretty interesting that no one, no one is there. I've heard of a couple of assistant editors being asked to go in and, and yeah. be the, you know, in, in home person, but you guys aren't even doing that. That's pretty amazing. We're not doing that. We don't ever want to put the people that work with us in jeopardy in any way. Not even some good news is worth getting somebody sick. And that was the thing that, you know, we always fell back on. There was one week when the server went down and we had to deliver the show locally. Uh, everything that, that we've ever engineered on our end is redundant. There's always a fail safe. There's always another person. There's always another place that the media exists. And that was drilled into us from our early days of making stuff with HBO, but it survived and it's enabled us to do things that are totally digital on the internet and protracted in a way that feels like a post house. You know, for me, this is the first opportunity to fully actualize and marry our two entities, Leroy and Senior Post. And this is the chance for us to show, you know, at a pretty large scale, how we tell good stories really well in any type of environment. If you had met me, you know, a year ago, I would have told you all about the post house and how great it was and how we built a production company inside of a post house and we do really cool stuff and it's very comfortable and you should come work there because, you know, it's a creatively fulfilling and inspiring place that's, you know, beautiful and, you know, has 10 gig ethernet. Um, but, you know, I'm here losing 5G every two days. You know, I couldn't even get onto the Skype because my internet reset in the house. Like, we're we're making this TV show on a group iMessage sitting outside in our backyards. Like, just understanding how little you need to do something great has been such a great takeaway from the show. And when this is over, I'll tell you, I'm not going to go to work every day. I'm gonna I'm gonna have a good work life balance. And I'm going to be productive and creative and, and make better work because I'm starting to learn how to appreciate, you know, what it is that we're actually doing. Does it kind of freak you out that you have 18 edit suites? <laughs> yeah, it does. I mean, we're trying, you know, edit suites are really <laughs> isolated and sanitary, uh, but I'm not really interested in rolling the dice. Uh, yeah, it freaks me out. And you know, we built a lot of those in the past two years, but they were built to meet the demand of growth. And I think, you know, our takeaway really is like, we never built it so they would come. We always built what we needed at the time. And we've been very conservative and pragmatic about, you know, scaling up a post house and creating a production company and scaffolding one over the other to create a situation where we could always make the bet and take the risk in order to make the thing. And so, you know, the risk for some good news was waking everybody up on a Saturday and it yielded all of this, including this conversation. And I think for us, like, we're not risk averse, but we're practical. 
while there will always be more shows, I think there will be more and more shows like Some Good News and things that really don't need that sort of infrastructure. There will always be shows that do really need it, I think, at least in the foreseeable future, that are big, that need to be served, that need to have six editors on at the same time. Mm-hmm. And that kind of thing, while possible, if you're not in a physical space, just becomes so much harder that if it isn't needed, it will come back, I think. Uh, Evan, you want to wrap up and I'll catch up with you? Yeah, that's Steve, thank you so much. It was such a pleasure. Yep, good talking to you. Bye-bye. You as well. That's it for Out of the Cut this week. Thanks for listening. Also, check out ProVideoCoalition.com for nearly 250 interviews with the world's top editors. Or read the book Art of the Cut Conversations with Film and TV Editors for a topic-driven, curated experience. Thanks again to my guests, Josh Sr. and Evan Buxbaum. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Hullfish. I hope you subscribe to this podcast and give it a review, please. And finally, be sure to share them with a filmmaking or film-loving friend.